this morning, I want to talk to you about the joy of money. Next week, the ethics of money. In three weeks, so you know the week to skip, I want to talk about tithing and the practice of money. Four weeks from now, I want to talk about the heart of money. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the joy, the ethics, the practice, and the heart of money. And this morning, let's talk about the joy of God's economic plan. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, this is his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read the scripture as was custom in their tradition. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. Here is Jesus speaking to his church. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. After saying that, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, I have bad news. I have bad news. Some of you look like you may be uh, bad news people this morning. Do you have bad news? Is there bad news that you would like to share with me? I'm going to share with you bad news, but before I share with me, with you, my bad news, would you like to share with me your bad news? Does anyone have this bad news? Can we just complain for a minute? Bad news, Lizzie, you got bad news? No, you don't want to share it. Teachers give too much homework. Yeah, there's bad news right there. Yeah. Math class is not fun. Uh, Math class has never been fun. That's... What's bad news to some is good news to others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you ready for my set of bad news? Or do you have some more confession to do? My set of bad news. There are more. It's real bad news, guys. There are more slaves now than at any other point in human history. There's an estimated 45.8 million slaves in the world today. And as Rex, as you prayed for those under persecution, I was thinking about the statistic that I was going to share today. I don't know off the top of my head the statistic of the persecuted church, but it is large. And we pray for them. Alongside them is the overwhelming number of 45.8 million people that find themselves in some form of slavery, some form of persecution of this horde. The major industry, do you know what the major industry of slavery is? It's bonded labor. You probably thought it was sex trafficking, but it is not. Sex trafficking is there, so is forced labor, so is child slavery. And what was a surprise to me, child marriage makes up 45.8 million people in slavery today. I have more bad news, more bad news. We are very in debt. We are enslaved And we are in debt. 
CBS News reports that the average person is dying with, what's your guess? How much debt does the average person die with? What do you think? 50,000? More than that. 70 is less than that. $2,062,000 worth of debt. The average American holds $17,000 worth of credit card debt. In these categories, if you have this type of debt, the average person, if they have a credit card, the average person has $17,000 worth of credit card debt. The average person has a $180,000 mortgage, $30,000 auto loan, and $50,000 worth of student loans. Maybe not all of those. Maybe, unfortunately, some have all of those. Wow. So, I have bad news this morning, Anya. We are enslaved and we are in debt. Despite the gospel proclamation that Jesus has set us free and forgiven our debts, it seems we do not live that way. The gospel is an economical gospel. As you heard in the passage of Luke this morning, it often, the gospel often, or the Bible often, uses financial terms to talk about the reign or kingdom of God. In fact, did you know that there are more passages that mention money and possessions than mention the love of God? Our Bible cares about our economical fiduciary patterns and habits and practices. The gospel cares a lot about it. It is very, this won't go over super well, but the gospel is also very political. And it's also very economical. And it actually has a lot to say about our practices of sexuality as well. The three big things that we hate to talk about, the Bible seems just immersed in them. I'm not going to talk about the other two. I'm going to talk about economy. So why? Why does our financial pattern seem so distorted? And what should our relationship with money be? How come shadow economies seem to grow so large when God has put forth a very clear plan of joyous, generous giving? How come we seem so enslaved and so in debt to money? The church has a storied past with money, some good, some bad. Wednesday was a major anniversary in the life of the church. Derek Davis cannot answer, neither can any of the seminary students over here. Wednesday, November 1st, was a major anniversary. It was the 500th anniversary in church history. Nathan can't mention either because he's real smart too. (laughs) What was it, Mike? It was the Great Reformation. And unbeknownst to him, probably turning in his grave, Martin Luther, who led the Great Reformation, is credited with the rise to what economical system? Capitalism. Does anyone know the connection between Martin Luther and capitalism? It may help first to talk about what the Reformation was. The Reformation reveals one of those distorted practices that the church's relationship with money had been in bed with. And that was the practice of indulgences, where the church church contained what they thought and controlled God's favor and God's grace. And you could pay extra money for a priest to forgive the sins of someone that had passed, or even yourself, if you paid extra money. The church controlled the reading of Scripture. See, they didn't have Bible studies in those days. Scripture was only read by the priest 
on the days that they gathered. And so in some ways, and he's dealing with mostly illiterate society, so the priest could control the meaning of Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture. Martin Luther decided, hey, that's not right. <laughs> it's not cool for the church to manipulate the way that prayers are used so you can rob me of my bank account and make yourself rich. That's not right. I would agree. That's a bad practice of the church and money. It's a bad reading of Scripture. And so Martin Luther got hopped up on, uh, I don't know, Holy Spirit and being like, uh, what's, that, what's that movie in the 80s where, they, uh, the, where he walks out? Breakfast Club, yeah, man, he's, he's the man. He's pumping his fist, walking to uh, the church there with his 95 thesis and nailing it up on, on the door of the church, telling the Catholic Church exactly the, the good news of salvation through faith and how that would change the practices of the church. Well, in doing this, it starts a whole new segment of the church history river flow, a whole new branch of the river, Protestantism. It started out of the Great Reformation. And one of the hallmarks of Protestantism, and I'm oversimplifying here, but one of the hallmarks of Protestantism is everybody gets a Bible. Everybody gets one. In fact, everyone gets one, and if you're a pastor, you get 30. Okay? You can have, you can have the Bible in whatever translation suits you best. In fact, you can have church however you like it best. And, you, and I don't think this is at all what Martin Luther intended. But what ends up happening is the rise of the individual expression. Individualization, the groundwork for it, is laid partly because of the Reformation. Whatever you, however you want to read Scripture, you may read Scripture that way. And however you want to worship, you may worship that way. Well, you know what thrives in cultures of individualization? You know what thrives in it? Recent reports have come out that cultures and worldviews of individualization, that capitalism within those markets is exponentially higher. You should see our market value compared to China's. China's is not a culture of individualization. America is, and we are tenfold above them. We thrive in individuals. So it has caused some to say, and by some I mean a really, really important writer in the 20th century named Adam Smith. It's caused some to say that Protestantism is the reason for capitalism. And maybe, and I don't think this is Adam Smith's point, and his viewpoint has since been debunked, but that was his thoughts that Protestantism is the reason for capitalism. But it may lead some to even say, that there's a preferred method of economy in God's worldview. May lead some in here to say that God has a preferred political economy than others. Well, I think Martin Luther would turn in his grave to know that his very theological viewpoints have been co-opted by the state to become government in economical viewpoints. But it does lead to a very important question. Does God have an economy? Maybe capitalism is it. Maybe it's not. Does God have a financial worldview? If so, what might it be? And where might we find it? 
I think because there are more scriptures in the Bible that talk about finances and possessions and talk about the love of God, we could spend a long time talking about God's economic plan. But for a crash course, I would suggest we start in Leviticus chapter 25 with the year of the Jubilee. What was the year of the Jubilee? Well, it was their Sabbath practice on steroids. They loved the number seven, and so they just revolved around the number seven, which was the number of completeness and wholeness. Every seven days, you took a day not off. You took a day of rest. It was far more rich in meaning than a day off. It was a day of rest. We can get in the meaning of that later, but every seventh year. So every seventh day, you had a Sabbath day, a day of rest. Every seventh year, the whole land that you farmed took a day of rest for the whole year. You let the whole, and of course their economy then was agricultural economy. So it would be like saying you took a year off work. So you worked for six years at the bank, Stephan, on the seventh year, you didn't work. Man, you guys had a problem with the seven-week sabbatical. Could you imagine a 52-week sabbatical? You tell your boss that. You tell him you're Jewish. <laughs> the year, you go in there and read Luke 4 and say, the year of the Lord's favor has begun. See what happened. Same thing that happened to Jesus probably would happen to you. Um, and so, on the seventh year, not only did you not go to work, you let the land lay father. But the re- reason, then that you did that, the reason that you did that is so that the poor amongst you could have something to eat and store up. And God said, I'll be faithful to you. I'll make the sixth year so plentiful for you that you'll eat off of it, not only in the seventh year, but the eighth year into the ninth year. You'll be eating off what you reap in the sixth year. I'll be faithful to you. Do not work on the seventh year. And let your slaves go free. Now, seven years over, so seven times seven, on the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Every seventh day was Sabbath day. Every seventh year was Sabbath year. And every 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Does anyone know what happened in the year of Jubilee? You can read Leviticus 25 and find out. Pastor Dennis, tell us what happened in the year of Jubilee. It was a party. It was a party. So the land went, the land went uh, free. You didn't farm the land. The slaves were returned, right? And what else? This is the big one. What happened? All debt was forgiven and all property returned. Oh my goodness gracious, could you believe that? That on the 50th year of owning your house, you're going to give it back to the bank. Could you imagine doing that? <laughs> you, like the, you like the part where you didn't work for a year. The giving the stuff back. Oh, I, don't know if I, I don't know if I like that. But in return, if we really did that, if I gave my house back to the bank, it would then be if the bank was going to live under God's rule and reign, it would then be the bank's responsibility to give that land back as well. Wow. Crazy. So what's the purpose of the Sabbath? What can we learn from economical practices of the year of Jubilee? I think the big thing that we learn in this is that the Lord owns it all. And that he wants the people to begin to practice where they can't claim ownership upon something else and then extract that or exploit that for their own economical purposes. So slavery could not exist in long-term patterns of slavery that we know it to be. People could not be oppressed in this type of environment because regularly slaves were being set free, land was being returned, and people were learning to rest. 
You couldn't exploit the land for your own riches and wealth because it was God's riches and wealth, not humanity's. Listen to the way in Leviticus 25, 23, the way that God says this on Mount Sinai. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis. This is the Lord's words. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. And so to speed this deal up, man, Jesus is hanging out. He goes out to the desert for 40 days. He's tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry, and he's starved for people's attention. And so he comes out of the desert, and he goes to synagogue. He gets there. He opens up the scriptures in Isaiah, and it falls upon this passage. We said the year of the Lord's favor. You could also read that to say the year of Jubilee. He pronounces not only that the year of Jubilee has begun, but that he himself is the embodiment of Jubilee. It's as if Jesus enters the scene, coming out of the desert in which Satan had tempted him to be a welfare provider where he could run and rule the economy. And everyone would come to him for their economic needs. And he would be the provider of everyone's economy. He could be the president, you know. He could run the budgets. But Jesus knew that God's economy was so much richer than one government running finances. And so he denies this temptation, right? He denies that one, he denies the three others. He comes into the synagogue and he proclaims inside the temple that he is the year of Jubilee, that he is God's economic plan, that he will bring good news to the poor, that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the year of the Lord's favor, or excuse me, the year of Jubilee is here. God's economic plan is found in the proclamation and person of Jesus. So what did the church look like when they actually believed and confessed that Jesus was God's economic plan? Sorry, you know what I mean by that? What did the church look like when they confessed that Jesus owns everything, including their heart, their lives, and their checkbook? What did it look like? When Jesus was the Lord of everything, not just on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, whenever it is we get it. But Jesus was the Lord of absolutely every ounce of everything. What did it look like? Well, I would like you to turn your attention to the screen and let's read a familiar passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. I want to just talk about this briefly And then I'll end with some questions, and Pastor Justin will lead us in the Eucharist. Just as long as you promise off our first Sunday on the message of money, you don't run me out here and try to stone me. That what happened to Jesus. Don't don't, don't do that to me, please. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The question at hand is, what did the church look like when they bought into the message of Jesus? God's economic plan. Well, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, 
and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came upon them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions. Man, it sounds like the year of Jubilee, doesn't it? They sold their property and possessions and shared their money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. They shared their possessions with great joy. Our economy does not know joy. Our economy, no, and by economy I mean human economy in whatever form that comes in. We know 47.8 million slaves. That's what we know. We know debt to the tune of $62,000 per person. We don't know joy and generosity and sharing money to chase in our pursuit of happiness through currency has not delivered on what it's promised. There are some of you, and I'm looking at you, because some of you have shared your story with me. And money is not a fun topic. Okay. So what exactly, Ron, is God's economic plan? Is it a formula? Like, is there a class that I should teach? And we can go through some principles and we can teach you how to write on an envelope. Is God's economic plan, is it a formula? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's a person. I don't think it's a formula. I don't think it can be reduced to a set of propositions, though they may be helpful. And though there may be several people that have taught about ways that we can financially plan based off scriptural truths that I think are very valuable. However, in talking about what God desires for currency and economy, I'm not sure it's a formula. I'm not sure it's a set of propositions. I don't think it's for governments or nation states to grow rich. I don't think it's for individuals to prosper. Just don't throw me out of here. I don't think it's for individuals to prosper or for the institutional church to amass financial wealth. I don't think that's the plan of God's economy either. I think God's economic plan is for the purposes and plans of God to be cultivated and practiced on earth. I think it's for Eden to burst forth in the wilderness. It's for life to be birthed in the death and decay of our society. It's for our good. It's for our flourishing. It's so that no one will be left behind. It's so that the poor will be cared for. It's so that the 99% will have reason to rejoice along with the 1%. God's economic plan is for the flourishing of all of creation, not for the raping of the earth for the wealth of an individual. It's so that the earth will become rich too. It's so that we rejoice in the joy of one another. God's economic plan requires that we live together. And that if we were to 
give all of our hearts to Jesus, man, that it would collide us into union with one another, that I could never set myself against you. You would eternally be my sister and my brother. What would that do to my bank account if I saw you in the same way that I see my daughter? Oh, boy. I may come to set you free when you're captive. I may come to heal your eyesight when you are blind. When you are poor and crippled, I will come alongside you and assist you. There is nothing I would not do for my daughter. There is nothing I would not do for my son. I would give my own a heart for Ben Edwards. I've learned this week that there are no two people that I could imagine loving more than Hadley Jean and Benjamin Lee. They are the best. You should have them. They are great. <laughs> you should have them tonight, actually. <laughs> so what? <laughs> what happens? What happens when Jesus becomes the Lord of my heart? I see you like Jesus sees you, like children or like brothers and sisters. Boy, there is nothing I wouldn't do for you. I want to ask a set of questions. Because after the good news of Jesus had been preached to the Acts 2 church, they responded in such miraculous ways. And I want you to know that what you read in Acts 2.42 is not a formula. It's a response. It's not a bunch of people meeting in a boardroom talking about what the vision of the church should be. Okay, so... As we move forward and try to establish who we're going to be as a church, don't come to Acts 2.42 to me. It's not a formula. We can't just do that. If we could just do that, then let's do it. But we can't. It's not a formula. It's a response. It's response out of worship, out of proclamation of Jesus. It's an acceptance of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that does that. It is not the good work of human beings that have a good plan. It is the response of Jesus the Lord. And so in Acts 2.42, the church that hears the proclamation of Jesus and they want to respond, they come up to Peter and they say, what should we do? And what does Peter say? Peter says essentially what I just said to you. Repent. Is Jesus your Lord? Do you want to know God's economic plan? Then you need to know Jesus. If we want to see a revival of our finances in our homes, then you need to know Jesus. Boy, I'm telling you, I don't think the world will ever accept God's economic plan, but that won't stop you from doing it. It won't stop you from selling what you need to sell and sharing your possessions and opening your homes and opening your hearts and allowing for rich generosity. So let me ask you, and Pastor Kevin, you can come, where are we not Responding to the good news of Jesus. What are we not submitting to the Lordship of Christ? You're going to worship something. So what is it that you're worshiping? Is it Indiana basketball? Is it Chicago Cubs baseball? Is it the latest trend in technology? I put myself on blast so I didn't have to put you on blast. Who has your worship? 
We are living in response to something, church. There's something that has our heart. What is it? When was the last time Jesus was a complete object of your devotion? I think, Rex, this is a tough, this is a tough message. But I think it's true of not just money. I think it's true of the things that we don't want to talk about. Like the S word and the P word. When was the last time Jesus was politics? <laughs> when was it? Oh, Word of the Lord, I'm done. <laughs> when, when was the last time Jesus was the complete object of our devotion? And if Jesus was the complete object of our devotion, when we go to talk about politics, it may change the way we talk about politics. If Jesus was the complete object of our devotion when we need to talk about sexual ethics and sexuality, it may change the way we have that conversation. And if Jesus was the complete object and devotion of our finances, how would that change our homes? Come on, Jake, just get through the last two questions. When was the last time we could say with a clear conscience, church, that God ruled supreme in our hearts? Is there some repenting that needs to happen today? This doesn't have to be heavy. You're good. I'm good. But there probably needs to be repenting down in my life. Because I'm not sure I can answer with a clear conscience that God owns it all. I'm not sure I can live with that type of faith right now. Whose economic plan are we living under? One that promises wealth or one that promises life? And I think those are the questions that we start with this morning. That God's economic plan is expressed in the practice of the year of Jubilee and seen in the person of Jesus. It promises life to everyone, not wealth to one individual person, but life to everyone. Whose economic plan are you living under? One of this world or one of God's? And if you're interested in living under God's economic plan, do you know what's required? Repent, brothers and sisters. Open your hearts and let Jesus in to your piggy banks and into the very deepest recesses of your life, all of you, all of whom you are. I promise you there, as heavy as this message sounds, there, there is life, there is peace, there is joy. I think if our church were to allow Jesus to live in every faucet of our life, we would see a church that couldn't help but open their doors share their possessions, sell their land. I just think we would look like the year of Jubilee. But that's not something that we can just get together and in a boardroom and make the properties board decide to do that for us. That's not living true church. No, we've got to confess with our hearts and in the belief that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Spirit will move us in ways we could not even imagine. It starts with confession. Father, thank you for this morning. And for this chance to be together with New Beginnings Church, to gather as family, God, we've heard an important word, that Jesus is the year of Jubilee, and we must confess that you are Lord. Father, where we have put anything else on the pedestal of lordship, Lord, we confess and repent to you. May God, may you cleanse our hearts, may you purify us, may you sanctify us, may you set us apart, Lord. And may your spirit move us in such radical action that it just is just the greatest thing. That God, may your welfare 
and wealth spread out throughout this city. May least some come to know your economic plan through people who worship your son. Jesus, you are Lord. You are Lord of New Beginnings Church, and you're Lord of our finances. It's in your name we pray. Amen.